Hey, parents and little adventurers. Ever wondered where hot dogs come from? Dive into a world of wonder with the new children's book about cellular agriculture. Cellular agriculture? What's that? It's the science behind tomorrow's foods. Discover the journey of a family barbecue in a way that's fun, educational, and downright tasty. Grab your copy of Where Do Hot Dogs Come From? on Amazon today. Yum! The future sounds so delicious. Curious for more? Visit www.hotdog.fyi. Happy reading! Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. We're excited to have Peter Vestrada as the guest for this episode. This episode is brought to you by Radical Snacks, a locally based food company passionate about awesome living is crafting snacks with whole foods and seasons them with plant-based nootropics that support memory, focus, motivation, and mood. Their first products are 100 calorie snack bars made from ingredients like 60 blueberries, yes, that's 60 blueberries packed in one bar, and research-based levels of adaptogens and polyphenols from plants like celery, turmeric, and rhodiola rosea. Radical Snacks bases their recipes on scientific research with a keen sense of yum, making snacks for the athlete, professional, and those serious about living awesome, which means listeners of this podcast. Knowing how awesome you are, Radical is offering you 20% off orders if you use our coupon code FUTUREFOODS. That's FUTUREFOODS, F-U-T-U-R-E-F-O-O-D-S at RadicalSnacks.com, R-A-D-I-C-L-E, Snacks.com. Yes, that's the botanical spelling of Radical ending in I-C-L-E, RadicalSnacks.com. You've got to try one. Not only are they functional, they are delicious. Peter is a consultant and food scientist with over 30 years of working experience in the food industry. After completing an MS in food tech and ag at Wageningen University in the Netherlands, Peter went on to hold several senior positions within the meat industry. In 2004, Peter represented his company in a Dutch government-funded research project into the development of in vitro cultured meat. Teaming up with Professor Mark Post, he was involved with the production of the first hamburger from cultured meat, presented in 2013 in London. In 2016, with Maastricht University and Mark Post, Peter founded Mosa Meat, a company that aims to continue the research and development of the cultured meat process, make the product competitive, and consequently spread the technology. Peter, I'd like to welcome you to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for this uh, opportunity to, uh, to share with, uh, with all of you what I think is a very important development. Peter, please tell us a little bit about your background and give our listeners an introduction to Mosa Meat. Yeah, so my background is in, is in food science. I'm a, I'm a food scientist. I was uh, trained in food technology at Wageningen University in the Netherlands. I spent most of my career in the meat industry, actually, until about 10 years ago. And from then on, I started working as an independent food consultant. And the last two years, I've been CEO of, of Moza Meat. And Moza Meat is a, is a spin-out from Maastricht University, one of the uh, medical universities in the Netherlands. And uh, it's, to be more specific, a spin-out from the lab that created the first tissue-engineered hamburger ever, which was presented in London a couple of years ago. And... Uh, our goal is to 
develop tissue engineering into a technology that can mass produce affordable and safe meat. There are many different reasons to pursue cultured meat. What is the most important advantage or benefit to you personally? Yeah, cultured meat ticks a lot of boxes, but for me, and, and that matter for my co-founder, Mark Post as well, it's the environmental impact of, of meat production that uh, can be, well, basically undone if you were to switch to, to meat from this technology. That's, that's the main thing for us. And also food security is, uh, is an important issue for us. And this technology can really help to improve food security all over the place. Now, of course, for many of you, uh, I guess animal welfare is is a driver, and indeed that's uh, that's a great bonus for us. But it's mainly the sustainability thing that drives us. And by food security, you mean really having enough food to feed the world's population? Yeah, by food security, I mean um, having healthy, nutritious food available for everybody. So this is a question I don't get to ask very often. So you've eaten cultured meat. How would you say the taste has changed? since the production of the first sample, uh, I, and I believe that was back in 2013. Yeah, indeed, it was in 2013, and it may surprise you, but I, I actually haven't tasted it since. We've been working on a few projects since that bring us to, uh, well, what we call Hamburger 2.0, but we're not there yet. The product that we showed in 2013, it was a, well, a proof of concept, I guess, but uh, by no means a finished product. So we're working on a couple of technical issues um, that are still there, for instance, being able to create fat tissue, or making the red color of the meat, which is very essential for the taste as well. Or we're working on growing the meat cells in a medium that contains no animal ingredients. And we still think we need about a year and a half, maybe two, to finalize all those developments. And up to that point, it just doesn't make sense to taste the product. So if, if we were to produce larger amounts today, I'm sure they would taste better already. But, uh, you know, we make good progress with this project, but uh, we still need some time. So we're only going to do that when, it's, when, we're, uh, when we're finished with all that development. I see. And so the original sample, it, it needed to be colored. So really, what color does it come after the process of creating the, the sample? Uh, what color is it before the color is added? Yeah, so if you, if you produce cultured meat w without producing the myoglobin, which is the stuff that makes the meat red, and that's what we did in 2013, then the, the, the fibers are white, yellowish white, so they, they basically have no color at all. And to compensate for that, we added plant-based coloring to the hamburger. We hear the term clean meat, cultured meat, uh, in vitro or lab-grown meat. What is the term that you like to use when describing cultured meat to a non-industry person? Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good question because there's a lot of debate going on about naming. Um, out of habit, I still call it cultured meat a lot of the times, but I try to use what seems to be becoming the standard, at least in the English-speaking countries, which is clean meat. But if if I were to translate clean meat in Dutch, which is my native country, uh, literally, it would make no sense. So in Dutch, we use a sort of a translation of color, cultured meat. So I guess 50-50 cultured meat and clean meat. At the time today, I don't really care a lot about naming. I care most about getting the technology to the point where we can actually make the meat for a good price and at a good quality. We're starting to see a lot of companies and research come out of the Netherlands. Would you say that the Netherlands is, is really a hub for cultured meat? Or is there another area that might be uh, excelling in this type of either business aspect or research aspect? Well, the Netherlands have always been a, uh, a large agricultural economy and one of the most 
renowned universities uh, on the, in the field of agriculture is Wageningen University, and uh, that's that's really one of the uh, one of the best in the world. Uh, having said that, specifically cultured meat, as far as that is concerned, we are the only company in the Netherlands working on that. In fact, we are the only company in Europe, as far as I know, who are working on that. There is, however, a lot of uh, well activity. Uh, you could say in the Netherlands on plant-based meat, plant-based meats. Uh, so meat produced from from soy or pea protein or from insects. Uh, there are great products being developed from seaweed, from algae. So that's there's a lot of a lot of that is going on. But cultured meat, not so much yet in the Netherlands. We're the only ones, as far as I know. You have a great deal of experience in the food industry. What are some of the key insights that you were able to take away from the existing food industry and apply it to the cultured meat industry? Yeah, food industry tends to be a little bit conservative once in a while, and specifically the meat industry tends to be even more conservative. Having said that, what I would take away from my experience in the in the food industry, well, there's a couple of takeaways. I, I would say, first of all, be transparent. And that's very important for technologies like these that are, you know, just a little bit Star Trek-ish for, uh, for many of the consumers who hear about it. So be transparent, be as open as you can about how you make your food, how you make the stuff and how it's made, where it's coming from. Uh, don't hold stuff back um, about your products, but also don't hold stuff back about the alternatives. So be also transparent about what traditional meat is all about these days. And we try to be as transparent as we can to anybody who asks what we do, why we do it and how we do it. And also, specifically for meat, really don't think that's just a bunch of molecules. Meat is a very, very special product. It's, it's, it is a bunch of molecules, but they are physically highly organized. And that's what makes meat so special and so hard to mimic. So you should really see meat as a unique product. And you should not go to the market with anything less or you will, you know, you will do harm to the image of the technology. And maybe finally, I'd say be careful with consumer surveys. People are questioned about their food habits at some, you know, some marketing agency. They tend to give answers that differ from their behavior when they actually do the purchase in the supermarket. So be careful how you interpret consumer surveys. That's a couple of takeouts I would definitely and am definitely using in the field I am working in today. Right. And actually, for a lot of those plant-based alternatives, I think a lot of times people compare them to you know, veggie burgers, which are targeted towards vegans or vegetarians, where these plant-based alternatives are targeted towards, you know, non-vegans and non-vegetarians. And so I think, I think that's, that's pretty interesting in terms of how the marketing is scoped out. And so would you agree that most of the plant-based alternatives and also the cultured meat alternatives are, are definitely targeted far away from vegans and vegetarians? Yeah, I would definitely uh, agree with that. And that's where the market is. And that's where the solution to the problem is. I mean, the vegans and the vegetarians are people who somehow found the strength to step away from meat. Uh, that's a strength I haven't found in myself yet. But they are not the majority of the consumers. The majority of consumers are diehard meat eaters. And for them, if you want to seduce them to forget about traditional meat, you should give them something that gives them the same experience either plant-based or cellular agriculture-based, that doesn't matter, but you should give them something that gives them the meat experience. You're part of the core team that created the first cultured meat sample. Uh, would you say that this gives Mosa Meat a distinct advantage over other companies in the space? And what does Mosa Meat do differently? Yeah, well, we, we, we've worked 
off and on on this uh, technology since the mid-zeros, actually. So um, already a couple of years before the hamburger, there was a there was a research project funded by the Dutch government in the Netherlands, and uh, we, we were on that project. So I say that we I feel that with the experience that we have, we're definitely able to make efficient choices in this in the research strategy. So in the direction the research should take. We're just very experienced, basically. We have a world-class cell culturing lab at our disposal. And uh, in that sense, we're definitely among the best out there. But having said that, there's others out there with probably at the moment more resources at work uh, because they've received more funding than we have. And we really don't know exactly how we compare to them anymore, uh, to be honest. There are no products in the market yet. So there is no measure in the market yet. Uh, once the first product goes to the market, we'll, we'll know, but it hasn't happened yet. Typically what, what you see these days, now that a lot of private money is, is, is going into these companies that the doors are closing, the windows are closing, and uh, it's hard to tell what, what they're all doing. From a science and research perspective, do you think that that uh, is, a, is a bad thing when private companies are uh, conducting research that is not necessarily shared? Or is that a good thing in terms of having more investors put more money towards the research? I think it's a bit of both, but I would tend to think that I would have liked the research to be a little bit more open source for a little bit longer. It's actually quite early days yet. And in general, it's it's better in, in this stage of a development that is so technical and so, well, fundamental, maybe not, but so uh, so early days that um, that the research would still be open source and, and more in the traditional scientific realms. Uh, on the other side, I'm sure there is something of a, you know, of a race going on in the background uh, with some of those boys out there who want to be the first. And th that can be a very good driver as well to, to, to come to great results. So it's a bit of both. So there's criticism from animal activists about fetal bovine serum. Uh, and also, FBS is also very expensive. But this is required for current-day muscle cell culture. Uh, what is FBS exactly? Where do we get it from? And is there a way to grow cultured meat without it? Fetal bovine serum is uh, its a fraction of the blood of unborn cows. So if you let that sink in, you, you'd probably imagine how extremely animal unfriendly it is. So the criticism is is very just, actually. And indeed, it's also complex to, well, to produce or to harvest and to process it. So we will never go to the market with a product grown with serum for many reasons. The animal friendliness is, is one, but there's also a practical reason. There is, just isn't enough of that stuff to go around if you want to make the quantities that are associated with, with the size of the meat market. So also from a practical point of view, you will never be able to use serum to grow meat in large quantities. And in the field, and including with ourselves, we are developing so-called serum-free culturing technologies. And actually, we, we've made pretty good progress. We can already grow cells, our cells, without serum. We just need to optimize it. And we think we'll need another maybe a year, a year and a half for that. Uh, but uh, we're making good progress there. But again, uh, I repeat myself, but I guess it's good to be clear about that. We will never go to the market with a product grown on FBS. What are the biggest blockers, aside from the uh, mass production and kind of what you mentioned about being able to produce at scale. Uh, are there any blockers that are stopping us from a political standpoint, from bringing clean meat to the masses? And if those blockers were lifted, 
how much longer would we need to be able to bring clean meat to the market? So finalizing the, the technology, that'll just take time. But it's that's definitely going to come. I, I have no doubt about that. We, we may be a little bit pessimistic. We may be a little bit optimistic in terms of the timing, but that's that there are no really fundamental issues there anymore. So that's really going to come. Any block between that and the product being widely available in retail, uh, well, there are several. One is the price, obviously. And for the price to come down, upscaling is key. And two aspects of upscaling more specifically are key. One is the, the process and more specifically the part of the process where you produce the tissue. That's an area that has not been investigated a lot in the in the past because as I said earlier, this is essentially a medical technology and no one in the medical field has been interested so far to make 100,000 kilos of heart muscle tissue or liver or what have you. So that's uh, both an IP rich area as it's called. So nice ideas can uh, can are very welcome here, um, but it's also an area that has not been pursued that much. And another uh, very important factor is upscaling the production of the food that we give to the cells. So about 80% of the price of the meat is going to be determined by the price of the food, which is no different from what any farmer will tell you, by the way. And that's the same goes for when you grow traditional chickens and, 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 and pigs, etc. And the food production for cells does not exist yet at a scale that we need to be able to produce meat. There's a feed produ production, which is huge. And there's in the pharmaceutical field, there is, there is some cell food production that is tiny with extremely high standards. And somewhere in the middle between those two, a new supply chain needs to emerge that produces the food for the cells. And that supply chain needs to be built and it needs to be scaled up. And that's just going to take time and resources. And that's going to be key for the product to become cheap. Then there is regulatory approval. And I guess we all have to go through it. It, it depends on the country where you are, what the nature of that you know, approval will be in the EU. We have the so-called so novel food procedure, which is a pretty streamlined uh, and pre-formatted procedure that any new food that has not been in the market needs to go through. And it takes about a year and a half and, and money to go through that. But uh, we're very confident that we will uh, be able to go through that procedure without any problems. What I could add to this here is the depending discussion on the naming, which is linked to resistance from the meat industry. The United States Cattlemen's Association have filed a petition uh, that they want this product to be prohibited from being bought meat. So that's a, a type of resistance from the industry itself. I'm sure we'll see a lot more of that type of resistance as we get closer to a final product. We could, yeah, yeah. Although some of them are also investing, so it's... Uh, it goes both ways, apparently. Actually, one of our investors in, in is going to be a large European meat processor. Interesting. Okay. And I know there's the author, Paul Shapiro, makes a really good example uh, about artificial ice and how when freezing water uh, at home was introduced, those who were importing uh, natural ice were kind of saying, you know, resisting against artificial ice. So I think, is that something similar that we might be seeing here? That's an interesting question. The, the meat industry uh, has, has, has several well, segments, if you like. So there is producing the meat, uh, so raising cattle or raising pigs or chickens and killing them. And there is processing the meat. And a lot of the people working in the industry and a lot of the value adding in the industry is actually going on in the processing part, which is not going to be affected through this technology. They will just have a new 
source of raw material, but fundamentally their business will remain as it was. So the only part of the meat industry that's really going to be affected when this technology, well, takes over is going to be the part that raises and kills animals. And any resistance out there is is coming from them. There's a couple startups in the space either creating uh, fish or leather or other types of cultured products. Are there any startups that you think are interesting to look out for or doing cool things? I guess all the startups, I mean, it's it's about two hands full now in within the realms of cellular agriculture, that is. And um, you should really check out a company called Memphis Meat. You should check out Finless Foods, who are working on tuna. And you should check out Super Meats in Israel, who are working on chicken. And uh, I hope you're going to be checking out us as well. There's just, they used to be called Hampton Creek, uh, who were uh, so far mainly focusing on replacement egg. And they have uh, recently also stepped into this field. And they have actually by far the most aggressive timing of all. And they claim to go to the market uh, in 2018 with a first introduction. So I I should definitely check them out too. And do you think that the companies that are focused on plant-based meats will also get into uh, cultured meats? I don't think companies in in the area of plant-based will go towards cultured. No, the the goal is the same, but the technologies are so different. And they actually, they both have a reason to exist. So the plant-based products are getting better and better. And I'm pretty confident that their market share will increase significantly in the next 10, 20 years. Actually, if I were an investor, I would definitely look at this space as well. So they they coexist and they should remain to be coexisting in the next uh, years. Uh, they both have a very important role to play. There are a lot of entrepreneurs that are eager to start working on clean meat technologies, and this is a great thing. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are interested in this space? Um, well, my first advice would be don't start from scratch. So find a place where they do tissue engineering and where they have some, some experience with growing mammalian cells and speak to them about using those facilities and people for this cause. And then make a plan, find money, secure those people. Typically, the focus in that plan will be on the science, on the R&D and not on the marketing. Marketing is, uh, well, it's interesting, but I can assure you, if your science finds it true and as we know by now, much needed alternative for meat in an over $1 trillion market value, you'll find plenty of bright people to work on marketing and plenty of investors to pay them. So see that you get to that point first. That would be my biggest advice. You can learn more about Peter and Mosa Meat at www.mosameat.eu. Peter, are there any last insights you might have for our listeners? I think we touched on uh, a lot here, but I, I would ask you to be patient for a little bit longer. The media, they're all over this for a good reason, because it's potentially a development that's going to change agriculture as we know it. But we really need to lock ourselves up in the lab for a year or two to tie up all those loose ends before we can go to the market. So just to manage expectations, we still need some work to get to that point. Uh, that's That's clearly a message I would like to bring along. And also, we touched on it a little bit already, but... Uh, it may sound strange coming from me, but check out those latest latest development in plant-based meat substitutes. Some of those products are really good and they deserve a chance. So they deserve to be bought and tried as well. I would really do that. Do you have a favorite plant-based burger or plant-based alternative? 
Well, I do in the Netherlands, but your listeners probably won't know the, the product. But uh, we have uh, the vegetarian butcher, as he's called in the Netherlands, and they have a, a type of chicken pieces made from, uh, from soy in this case, and they are really good. Apart from that, I'm really curious to taste the, the Impossible Foods burger, but I haven't been in the U.S. Uh, to, uh, to do that lately. So uh, if I ever go to the U.S. In the, in the sh on the short term, uh, that's definitely one of the first things I'm, uh, I'm going to do is to taste the Impossible Burger. Peter, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story on the Cultured Meat and Future Food podcast. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to being with you on our next episode.